0: All right, ah, nice pop here. You know, through the summer, on the podcast here, I've been drinking a lot of beer, but now we're getting into fall, it's becoming quite autumnal, and I'll be moving over to whiskey. And uh, tonight, I'm going to be drinking a little bourbon, it's Knob Creek, it's the small batch, 100-proof And uh, we'll talk more about that later. So, I know I'm a day late. Thank you for your patience. Uh, This week just got away from me. It's one of those things. When you don't have a a production crew and it's just you and your buddy Brian and your friend Tim, you know, sometimes fuck shit just gets out of hand and that's all there is to it. But, here we go. First a drink. Cheers, everybody. You know... Many of you have listened to this show for a while. You know that one of the things that just burns my ass is bullshit information that is spread all over the internet, especially over social media. Now, it's not that this kind of stuff didn't exist before the internet. It did, but it was usually found at the checkout line in the tabloid papers like the Weekly World News or the National Enquirer. But one of the things that's out there on the internet that always gets me, gets my blood boiling, it's origin stories, okay? Like where something or a phrase or a tradition came from. So, knowing I was into history, someone once sent me an article called Life in the 1500s. Now, ostensibly, this was supposed to be about life in Europe at the uh, at the time of the end of the Middle Ages or whatever, I, I I I guess the person thought that I would find it interesting, and I did. I found it interestingly full of bullshit. I could take hours and pick this one article apart, but I, I'm I'm going to just talk about a few things that were in it. I'm going to use my bullshit voice when quoting so-called facts from this piece of tripe. So here we go. Most people married very young, like age 11 and 12. Well, no, they fucking didn't. N- except in arranged marriages and wealthy and aristocratic families, and that was only the one percenters of the population. And the children remained children, even if they were married. Perhaps the young bride lived with her husband's family, but she still would have lived as a child until she came into post-puberty. But, and most of the times, though, these These young bride and bridegroom, they lived with their own parents until they reached the age of sexual maturity. Now, another claim from this article, oh man, this is a dandy. It said that the expression, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, came from... The fact that people only bathed once a year and the month of May, a big tub they would fill with hot water. The man of the house would get the privilege of the nice clean water. Then all of the sons and the other men would get to wash. Then the women and finally the children. And last of all, of course, were the babies. By then, the water was pretty dirty and pretty thick. Thus the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bath water because it was so dirty you could actually lose someone in it. Now, That is just so stupid on so many fucking levels. I'm not even going to talk about it, and I'll let you think about that. I'm moving on to the next one. Another canard spread by this piece of internet horse shit. And it also hinged on the belief that people only bathe once a year. Most people got married in June. Why? Well, they took their yearly bath in May, so they were still smelling pretty good by June, although they were starting to smell a little bit, so the brides would carry a bouquet of flowers to hide their B.O. Oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Okay. In Europe, after the fall of the Roman Empire, the practice of regular full immersion bathing was a long way off in the, in the 1500s, mainly because filling a vessel with heated water that was large enough to hold a person was impractical given the effort required to collect fresh water and fuel for heating it. Only the very wealthy in society could afford to pay for the expense of time, materials, and the labor that was needed to bathe regularly. Now, most people did still bathe, in the sense of attempting to clean themselves as best they could with what they had, which was usually only a bucket and a cloth. The modern version of that would be to wash yourself over a sink, which we did many mornings in college because we slept too late. We always referred to it as a French whore's bath. Nothing against French whores. It's an honest profession, and they have wonderful accents. Anyway... Today's brides carry flowers simply because it is now custom to do so, but at one time, bridal bouquets were symbols of sexuality and fertility. Now, covering up anyone's bad smell played no part in why this custom came to being. Now, the reason for June weddings, consequently, came from a number of different cultural influences. The Roman goddess Juno was the protector of women and marriage and childbirth, and her month was June hence the popularity of June weddings in those parts of Europe where the Roman Empire had expanded, and even after it had fallen, it was still popular to have your wedding in June. Now, the Celts of the British Isles and Ireland, they held June weddings for another reason. The Celts held summer solstice fairs, which occurred, guess when, around the summer solstice, or in the old Irish language, mythem. I think that's how you say it. Now, these fairs, there was a lot of commerce done at these, and the clans would travel from their lands spread out through the different kingdoms to be at the fair, usually held at the Henri or the king's fort, and trade and business would be conducted, including arranged marriages for alliances between clans. Daughters were married off to sons and vice versa. So that's why in the northern European culture, or the western European culture, June weddings are um, a tradition. One last piece of sheep shite from this article that I want to share with you. Now, if these people had money, their plates were made out of pewter. Sometimes, some of their food had a high acid content, and some of the lead would leach out from the plates into their food. They really noticed this happened with tomatoes, so they stopped eating tomatoes for 400 years. Are you fucking kidding me? God damn it, my hands, my, my, my... My head is in my hands right now. You can't see it, but I'm, I'm doing a face palm. This is fucked up. Tomatoes are not even native to Europe. They weren't spread to the continent until after the Spanish colonization of the Americas. So in the 1500s, they wouldn't even have been in Europe yet. And while tomatoes were first cultivated in Britain in the late 16th century, it wasn't until the mid-18th century that they became common fare for food in the country. Now, the slowness of their adoption as a staple food was not because tomatoes were acidic, but the fact that many people believed tomatoes to be dangerous to eat because they resembled other plants known to be poisonous, such as hensbane, mandrake, and deadly nightshade, of which the tomato plant is closely related. So, for the longest time, the tomato was considered primarily an ornamental plant, and eating t- tomatoes was considered distasteful and harmful among the gentry, and it was not until the working classes on the manners started eating tomatoes regularly that they began to spread and gain popularity throughout society in Britain. So, like I said, there's, there's just an immense ton of shit out there on the internet. I guess the one thing we have learned is that nothing is better at spreading misinformation than the internet. And this stuff is innocuous, I mean, so what? As long as you're not a history scholar and you're just spewing this shit with your friends, who are probably no more of a scholar than you, big fucking deal, right? Wrong! Goddammit, wrong! This is how fallacies become facts in the minds of the public, and it's your obligation to call this shit out. Do a little research, goddammit, before you go spreading spurious pieces of bullshit like this among the public. Because of the public's seemingly unconcern about spreading this fallacious shit, these origin stories have become entrenched not only in popular culture, but some are even attached to historical figures. And such is the case with the origins of what I'm drinking tonight, bourbon. There are a lot of people out there who will tell you when and where bourbon was first made and how it got its names, and I've been told that on many of the French, or for for fuck's sake, not French, Kentucky, Kentucky bourbon distillery tours, that every one of them, has a different origin story for bourbon, but let me tell you, 99% of what you're going to learn on these distillery tours is complete and utter Kentucky grade A horse shit. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with, this one time we were eating a salad. This is History, the Story of Alcohol. Ah, listen to that. The tinkle of ice in a glass. Happiness, happiness. Cheers, everybody. Hmm. Back in 1789 in the hills of Kentucky, Baptist minister Elijah Craig began distilling corn whiskey. I know, you're thinking, a Baptist minister distilling whiskey? Well, remember, this is before the Second Great Awakening of the mid eighteen hundreds and before mainstream Protestant denominations began to preach about the evils of drinking. Now, besides preaching and distilling, Elijah Craig was involved in a number of financial pursuits, including surveying, road construction, land speculation, and educating. He donated land to build Georgetown College, the first Baptist college west of the Appalachians, which I'll bet has a ban on drinking if you're a student there. And he also built and owned a paper mill and a woolens mill. Elijah Craig was the first distiller in the United States to use charred barrels in the aging of his whiskey. One story says that he used some barrels that he had previously used to store sugar. And the residual sugar made the liquor sweeter, so to develop that deeper caramel flavors, he decided to char the barrels before he used them the next time. Another story says that there was a fire in the barrel warehouse, and rather than throw the barrels away, they went ahead and they put the white corn liquor in them, and ta-da! No, I'll do that better. Ta-da! Whiskey. The subsequent product began to be called Bourbon County Red. Because Elijah Craig was in Bourbon County. Thus is the birth of Bourbon. Uh, Okay, nope. Uh Uh-uh. Now, as historians will tell you, when there are more than one story about something, it is likely that none of the stories are completely true. And although this uh, legend is still popular and often repeated, it's completely apocryphal. Well, first thing... Elijah Craig's distillery wasn't in Bourbon County. It was to the east of where Bourbon County was. Likely, there was no single inventor of bourbon. It developed into its present form only in the late 19th century. Essentially, before that, any type of grain could be used to make whiskey, and the practice of aging whiskey and charring barrels for better flavor had been known in Europe for centuries, not only among the whiskey makers in in the British Isles, but also among the cognac and brandy makers in France. So that that charring of barrels had been known long before anyone ever distilled a single drop of liquor in Kentucky. Now, Maker's Mark's president, a fellow by the name of Bill Samuels, He's well known for telling a series of stories relating to the birth of bourbon. Samuels, perhaps, is one of the best ambassadors in the country in regards to bourbon. And he is prone to telling how bourbon was just a series of happy accidents. The first happy accident, according to Samuels, was this. In the mid-18th century, the colonial governments of Pennsylvania and Virginia were looking for someone to settle along the frontier and provide a buffer between the civilized colonist and the wilderness full of Indian savages. Their words, not mine. So these colonial legislators, they recruited Scots-Irish from Ulster in Northern Ireland. Now, the Scots-Irish were actually lowland Scots who had been planted in Northern Ireland beginning in the early 1600s, when King James I was looking for a way to deal with the savage native Irish, again, their words, not mine, who inhabited the lands. Now, the only thing that the Scots-Irish had in common with the native Irish is that they both hated the English, but they hated each other even more. See, the Scots-Irish were Calvinists, Presbyterians, hardcore Protestants, and the native Irish, of course, were Catholics. So, the planning of the Scots in Ulster was the beginning of the sectarian torment and violence that plagued Northern Ireland for these past four hundred years, only recently abated by the Good Friday Peace Accords of nineteen ninety eight. Excuse me, I've told this tale before on the podcast, but truth be told, you can't tell the story of whiskey in North America without discussing the Scots Irish. It's impossible. So in the early 1600s, King James knew that these Scots who for centuries had been harassing the English along the Scottish English border, well, they would be more than up to the task of taking on the Irish. And in the middle 1700s, the colonial legislatures of Virginia, who were, and Pennsylvania, by the way, who were English, They knew that the Scots-Irish were the people who could stand up against the Iroquois, the Shawnee, Cherokee, and the other tribes along the colonial western borders. According to Samuels, the second happy accident was that the Scots-Irish knew the art of distilling. The Scots had learned distilling from the Irish during the Christian monastic period of the late 1st millennia C.E., and the distilling of iskbaha which means the water of life in the gaelic or shorten it to Ishka, which became anglicized to whiskey was a craft that the celtic peoples had been perfecting for at least 1500 years by the time that the scots irish arrived scots irish arrived in colonial america now The grains most often used for distilling in Scotland and Northern Ireland were barley and rye, but neither of these did particularly well in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. But maize, what we in the United States call corn, it did exceptionally well in those conditions because it was a native plant, and consequently the adaptable Scots-Irish used what they had to make their whiskey. And making maize into whiskey was a much better way to monetize their crop on the frontier. It was easier to transport crocks of liquid whiskey to market than it was wagonfuls or sacks of grain. The third happy accident, according to Samuels, came with the opening of the trans-Appalachian frontier after the end of the American Revolution, where the first settlements ended up being established. Now, the Scots-Irish of the colonial frontier had been illegally long-hunting over the mountains for generations, which was against the laws of the British Crown, according to the Proclamation of 1763, which said there could be no settlers encroaching or hunting or settling on any lands west of the summit line of the Appalachian Mountains. But during the Revolutionary War, the colonial governments, or we were states by then, encouraged the Scots-Irish and others to pursue settlement along the Ohio River to further act as a buffer against the Indian allies of the British. Now, the first Kentucky settlement was settled by James Herod in 1774. It was called Herodstown. Now, that was followed by Lexington, which was named after the battle in Massachusetts, Boonesboro, which was settled by Daniel Boone, and McConnell Station, all of those settled in 1775. In 1778, George Rogers Clark, the older brother of William Clark of Lewis and Clark fame, he established the settlement of Corn Island near what would become Louisville. By the time the American Revolution ended, dozens of settlements had been established across central Kentucky. Now, just by coincidence and this is what the happy accident was, according to Samuels, all were located on the limestone shelf, a geological area shaped like the upper half of an hourglass, hourglass bleh, that makes up 25% of the state of Kentucky and 5% of Tennessee. The water running through this shelf, the limestone shelf, had the benefit of being high in calcium, and low in iron, which is ideal for distilling whiskey. To this day, every major American bourbon brand is still made in locations which are over this limestone shelf. The fourth happy accident, according to Samuels, and maybe the biggest stroke of luck, was the opening of the Natchez Trace in the late 1780s, a trail which connected... New Orleans to Lexington, Kentucky. Now, goods would be loaded up onto barges in Kentucky, and they would be floated down the Ohio and then down the Mississippi to New Orleans. And then the men down, they would take these barges, they'd sell them for wood, and then they would walk back, or ride back actually, they'd buy a horse, they'd ride back on the Natchez Trace up to Lexington, Kentucky, rather than trying to take a boat upstream. This is before steam engines, right? Now, this made the transport of goods to and from Kentucky much easier than hauling freight over the Wilderness Road and through the Cumberland Gap of the Appalachian Mountains back to the United States along the East Coast. And for a time, many years, matter of fact, New Orleans became the biggest market for Kentucky whiskey. Now, before we go any further... We first should establish exactly what a whiskey has to do to be called bourbon. And first, I need a drink. I'm out of ice. I let my ice melt. All right. In other words, what makes bourbon bourbon? And the short answer is the law. The federal standards of identity for bourbon stipulate what is and what isn't bourbon whiskey. For a whiskey to call itself bourbon, its mash, that is the mixture of grains from which the product is distilled, must contain at least 51% corn. Now the rest of the mash is usually filled out with malted barley and either rye or wheat. The mash must be distilled to a, uh, a degree of 160 proof or less, and put into the barrel at 125 proof or less, and it must not contain any additives. Now you're saying, "Yeah, but the the bourbon that we buy in most of the stores is like 80 proof and 100 proof, and some of them are up to 120. Um, how do they get the proof down? Well, they add either they add they add water to it to balance it out to get to the proof they want." Now, this whiskey must be aged in new charred oak barrels, and most often these barrels are white oak, but according to the law they can be any variety of oak. Black oak, red oak, bur oak, it doesn't matter. I don't think they make barrels out of live oak, but th- because, yeah, but anyway. And the barrel has to be new, brand new, and why? Well. A congressman from Arkansas brought up a bill in the U.S. Congress in the 1930s. Actually, he added an amendment to a bill in the 1930s after the repeal of Prohibition. Now, this bill stated that all bourbon had to be aged in brand new barrels, and the barrels could only be used once. Now, the reason given by Congress behind this law was it was has been the subject of speculation. Its basis may be an effort to retain part of bourbon's heritage by adhering to a single-use barrel model practiced before prohibition, or it may be a desire to ensure higher quality, much like the bottled-in bond regulations, etc., etc., or perhaps, more cynically, and I believe this is the truth because this is what politicians do, it may be the result of lobbying from the powerful Cooper's Union and the lumber industry to slide that single important word, new, placed in the text of the Federal Alcohol Administration Act of 1935. More than likely, the latter, rather than the former, is the reason. Because at that time, Arkansas was the number one producing state of white oak barrels. And if you can only use a barrel once, you're going to have to buy more new ones. Now, Missouri has the distinction today of being the number one manufacturer of oak barrels and I'm going to do a I'm going to do a program on that because our oak barrels here in Missouri go all over the world and why because of liquor I'm going to do a story on that sometime it's going to be fascinating just listen every week you'll hear it sooner or later now if you followed all of the parameters above that I just mentioned and I'm not going to repeat them again just You know, take your thing and go back 30 seconds, a minute, and you'll hear them all again. Anyway, you followed all those parameters, you have made bourbon. Now, things get a little bit more complicated than that, though, if you want to call your bourbon straight bourbon. If that's the case, you have to age it for at least two years in the barrel. Now, if you age it less than four years, you have to put an age statement somewhere on the bottle telling folks just how long you aged it so, like on Jim Beam white label, I got this uh if it doesn't have an age limit on it, that means it was aged more than four years. but if they don't if they age it for a long time, they'll put a number on there how many years, and they can only tell you the number of years for the youngest whiskey that was put in the blend in that barrel. This small batch has no age on it this uh knob creek has no age on it whatsoever but so it was probably aged for at least four years and it's gonna die now that's mm. oh, good now if a bourbon is called a small batch that means it's blended from a relatively small number of various barrels if a bourbon is called a single barrel bourbon it has to come from a single barrel rather than the blending of whiskey from multiple barrels and get this Bourbon does not have to come from Kentucky. It can come from any other state and still be called bourbon as long as it follows the aforementioned procedures that I have talked about. And if you want a, re- a refresher on those, just back up your uh, podcast machine there. But of course, it can only be called Kentucky bourbon if it comes from Kentucky. So, before we tackle how the name bourbon became attached to American corn whiskey that was aged in charred barrels, we really need to ask, what does bourbon actually refer to? Well, the name comes from the bourbon dynasty of France, the kings. You know, the Louis, and Beginning with Henry IV of France, who brought the family to power in 1589, and then there was Louis XIII, And then there was Louis XIV, who was the Sun King, he was the big guy. Then there was Louis XV, and it ended with the loss of Louis XVI's head, along with his wife Marie Antoinette in 1793 during the French Revolution. But, before Louis XVI lost his head, he helped the United States gain its independence from Great Britain. Louis had purposely kept France out of the American Revolutionary War, before 1777, his treasury was even at this time still nearly depleted from, and recovering from his father's extensive spending, that's Louis XV, during the French and Indian War and the Seven Years' War, and yes, I know those are the same wars, but we call it the French and Indian War where it was fought on the North American continent, and we call it the Seven Years' War when it was fought in Europe, and those wars were fought in the 1750s and early 1760s. After which, France lost all of its empire territories in North America, except for some islands in the Caribbean and a couple of little islands out off the Gulf of Saint Lawrence. Right, so did France contemplate helping the uh, Yankees in a, their, in an attempt to get back its lands, especially France really wanted to get back Canada. It wanted resource-rich Canada in North America. Well, yes. They did want to do that, but it was one of those cases where they set back and they thought it would be throwing more good money after bad. Now, the Americans weren't going to defeat the French Sacre Bleu. How in uh, could they? Britain was the greatest empire in the world. They had just defeated the second greatest empire in the world, which is us, the French, in 1763. The Americans are a bunch of peasants, n'est-ce pas, who drink whiskeys and ales and cider. <clears throat> they do not drink wine, nor brandy, nor cognac. To give them money for their war would be casting pearls before these swine. But, guess what? The Americans defeated the British at the Battle of Saratoga in 1777, and reper- reports began to swirl around Europe. That Britain was ready to make concessions to the Americans and end the war on favorable terms with the United States. See, they don't teach us this in our basic history classes in public schools. You've gotta you gotta dig deep to find this shit out, okay? Because it doesn't fit the narrative. The Americans might have come to the negotiating table had they been given full privileges in parliament, uh, voting privileges as, as in parliament. But anyway, these reports were spurious at best. I won't say they were false. I won't say they were true. There were factions that were talking about doing this, both in America and, both, and in, in England. But it was probably planted and given more validity by one Benjamin Franklin. He probably pushed this story and he pushed it for a reason. He wanted France to get in on the side of the of the of the Americans. So, Louis couldn't let. He could not let the American colonies or states, whatever you want to call them, he couldn't let them that happen. He couldn't let them rejoin Great Britain. And so, a massive amount of aid, arms, officers, and troops were sent to assist the Americans in 1778. Now, Louis also convinced the Dutch and the Spanish to join in the conflict, and the goal was to keep the power of the British Empire in check. Now, this move, it literally bankrupted the already struggling French royal treasury. But... The Americans did gain their independence, and as they say, the rest is history, or history. So, the Americans, to show their gratitude to their French allies for spending all of that money to help them gain their independence, they named towns and counties with French names. We, here in Missouri, we have... Lafayette County and we have Fayetteville. These are just two examples. Versailles. or Well, no, we don't say Versailles. We say Versailles. Anyway. Now, but in Kentucky alone, which was being settled in earnest during the Revolutionary War and shortly thereafter, the towns of Louisville, named after the king, Lafayette, named after French General Marquis de Lafayette. There was also a Paris. Well, we have a Paris in Missouri, too. And they have Versailles, and in Kentucky they say Versailles just like we do here in Missouri instead of Versailles. I would imagine that's because most they just saw the name in print, they never heard a Frenchman say Versailles. They just said, "Well, look at it, V E R S A I L L E S, Versailles." So anyway, now along with this in in Kentucky there are the counties a Fayette, and guess what? Bourbon! And so, it only cost King Louis XVI his head for the honor to have all of these places named after France in America. So there it is, you would say. Bourbon whiskey is named after Bourbon County, Kentucky. End of the case. And not so fast. I'll admit, that is what I thought, and that is what I've been told for years, bourbon came from Bourbon County, Kentucky. But to get from point A to point B doesn't seem to have a verifiable path. And that's not according to me, that's according to the man who has done more research on the history of bourbon whiskey than anybody else. Louisville historian Michael Veach, the author of Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey and American Heritage. I like Veach. He says there's no wrong way to drink bourbon. And anybody that says, oh, you have to drink bourbon this way or that way, you can dilute it with water, drink it on the rocks like I'm doing here, mix it with ginger ale, mix it with Coke, Stir in a liquor or two and call it something fancy like a Manhattan or a revolver? According to Veach, makers of America's native spirit are just as pleased to see their product served up with a maraschino cherry as they are watching it poured straight into a shot glass. And when it comes to all things bourbon, Veach is Louisville's go-to resource. As the associate curator of the Special Collections at Louisville's Filson Historical Society and a former archivist for United Distilleries, Veach is situated right in the heart of Kentucky bourbon country. He has spent decades studying bourbon and its history. Many local residents consider him the Spirit's unofficial ambassador, and it's a title he undoubtedly earned. Veach once spent an entire year sampling 130-plus bourbons and recording his thoughts in what would become Louisville's Bourbon Bible, a binder overflowing with tasting notes and food pairing suggestions that is now a resource at the city's famed bourbon bistro restaurant. His book, Kentucky Bourbon, an American heritage, tells the history of bourbon industry from the Whiskey Rebellion rebellion in the 1790s, which by the way, I think show number three or four, I think it was number three I did on the Whiskey Rebellion. You should go, if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen to it. Anyway, his book tells the history of the bourbon industry from the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s straight through to the 21st century and it highlights often overlooked aspects of the industry such as technology behind the modernization of spirits production and includes a few of Veach's own theories which might surprise most well-informed bourbon drinkers. First, take his argument on where the name bourbon comes from. Now as I stated previously, if you visit any Kentucky distillery, you are likely to hear that that moniker derives from Bourbon County, regardless of whether the whiskey is made in Bourbon County or not. It was once part of a larger expanse of, of the territory of Kentucky known as Old Bourbon. And that's in the upstate part of Kentucky. However, says Veach, the timeline, it doesn't match up. It, it, we need historians to keep us all straight on this shit, right? Through the Filson Historical Society, it is home to these bourbon labels printed as early in 1850s, and he says that the story of the name bourbon comes from Bourbon County. It doesn't even start appearing in print until, guess when? The 1870s, almost 100 years after bourbon is starting to be distilled. Instead, Veach, he believes that the name devolved in New Orleans after two French businessmen, the Tarascon brothers, who were from Cognac, France, where brandy excuse me, had been aged in charred oak barrels for generations. With well, the Tarascon brothers, they began shipping Kentucky whiskey down the Ohio from Louisville to the French residents of New Orleans. The Tarascons knew that if Kentuckians put their whiskey into charred barrels, they could sell it to New Orleans residents who would like it because it tastes more like sweet cognac or French-style brandies. Now, in the 19th century, New Orleans Entertainment District was, as it is today, on Bourbon Street. Now, Veach says that people probably started asking for that whiskey they sell over on Bourbon Street And that eventually morphed into that bourbon whiskey. Still, Michael Veach, the penultimate bourbon expert alive and walking the earth today, he does concede, quote, we may never know who actually invented bourbon, or even who the first Kentucky distiller was. So, there you go. Sorry, Elijah Craig, you didn't invent fucking bourbon. So quit saying you did. My guess is that it was whoever the whiskey distiller was that went with James Herod to establish Herodstown in 1774. But because whiskey distilling was such a common thing among the Scots-Irish settlers of the Kentucky frontier, nobody took the time to document that person's name. Now, as a lifelong Louisvillian, Veach has a few cherished places for imbibing his favorite local spirit, like I'm imbibing right now. Along with the Bourbon Bistro, Veach pays occasional visits to a bar at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel, as well as the bar at the iconic Seelbach Hotel, a four-star property that F. Scott Fitzgerald mentions in The Great Gatsby. Side note, Fitzgerald's character, Daisy Buchanan, who was Gatsby's golden girl, was from, guess where, Louisville. Veach also recommends Louisville's Dish on Market restaurant for both its fine bourbon selection and its presidential breakfast. This is an ode to our own Missouri President Harry Truman, who stayed at the uh, Seal Bach hotel while he was in Louisville and every morning he'd have one egg a slice of bacon buttered toast, a cup of fruit a glass of milk and a shot of old granddad according to Mr. Veach I need more whiskey you know what Mark Twain said about whiskey sometimes too much is barely enough Veach admits he's not a tour guide. He's more of a historian who loves bourbon. Boy, I understand him now. He knows the story of the drink, from the pure food and drug acts effects on bourbon to how prohibition contributed to the Great Depression. As I have stated on this podcast before, all events are distinctly intertwined. You just have to find the ways that they are. Still, there's one thing you won't find in Mr. Veach's books. That's ratings and reviews. He says, I really don't have a favorite bourbon. There are just too many different flavors and flavor profiles. It's like asking, what's your favorite wine? Well, don't I know that feeling. I love them all too. Not just bourbon, all whiskeys. Hell, I like beer. I like wine. I guess you could say I'm ombivorous. I'll drink them all. So here's to you, Professor Veach. The Indiana Jones of bourbon whiskey. Cheers. History Episode 43 was written and produced by me, Alan Tapman. The Technical Director of History is Brian McGeorge, the Marking Marketing director of History is Tim. I am not the Bomber McVeigh of Mission Digital Marketing. History is a wild Irish production and is recorded at Rivers Edge Studios. All rights reserved. And another month has gone by, and we're into yeah, she's month 11. Got an anniversary coming up, and we couldn't have done this without the support of our Patreon patrons. Thanks to all of our patrons. Frank Burkhead, Tony Rehagen, Zach Paul, Ethan Cordray, Dave Fisher, Tim Emmel, Tara kempker McBay, Tom and Lindsay Reichart, Justin and Kayla Bosca, George and Anna Carr, Terrence Duffy, Jennifer Heights, Kevin Lansford, Sheila Carnett, Brian Connell, Gaila and John Albert, Mary Lynn Path Richards, Sarah and Chris Schapp and Santa Fe Brewing Company of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thanks, guys. Thank all of you for helping us to keep the dogs fit. And if you'd like to help, you too can become a Patreon patron. Just go to the website, www.patreon.com slash podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com history podcast and there you can sign up to be a supporting listener thanks to everyone who shared the podcast from itunes soundcloud or stitcher and shared all of our posts on facebook or retweeted us on twitter the theme music for history is from ben sound do you need music for a project then go to www sound Dot com. And if you like this week's show, or you have a show idea, or you just want to tell me to fuck off, please let us know on Facebook. Okay, well, maybe not on Facebook. Maybe not fuck off on Facebook. Okay? Or send me an email at cheers at history.com, or leave me a voicemail at 409 29 Booze, 409 292 6693. You leave me a voicemail, voicemail, voicemail. voicemail give you the limited edition history onyx black shot glass really cool we're now up to 14 reservations for our grand irish pub crawl tour that's for next october 2018 a year from now as a matter of fact a year from right now we'll be in kilkenny drinking at the field bar or maybe some other place you don't want to miss it You can find out more information about the trip on Facebook page or email me or call me or leave me a message on the hotline and I'll give you all the details. That's right, we've only got 10 spots left. 14 reservations have already been made. You don't want to miss out. Thanks everybody for listening. I promise I'll keep trying to get better. So if I don't see you at the pub, I'll see you right back here on the podcast. And Lee, as always, you are the victoria to my shame. You are the measure of Jesus. Goodbye, everybody. And now it's time for Uncle Al's Drunk Uncle Al's Joke of the Week. So there's a pub, Irish pub, up in uh, Chicago, in Jefferson Park. There's a lot of Irish. There's a lot of Irish people in Jefferson Park. It used to be at one time it was just Irish and Polish people, but uh, a number of folks now have come in from uh, the Latin American countries, and they've mixed in quite well with the Irish and the Polish people there. Jefferson Park, it's a great fucking neighborhood. It's It's still in the city limits of Chicago, and that's where my friend Brooks and uh, his wife, Michelle, and my godson, Gordy, that's where they live. Anyway, Brooks and I were one out, out one night. And uh, we were went to this pub called uh, The Four Counties uh, there in, in uh, Jefferson Park. And we were sitting there at the bar, and he and I were talking about baseball. He loves the Cubs. And good luck to you, Brooks. I hope the Cubs win this season. Uh, not really. Anyway, but... Um, So we're sitting there at the bar and we're having a pint and this guy comes in and he's staggering drunk. He's just fucking staggering drunk. And he comes up and he gets up to the bar stool, and he sits down and the barman says, ah, what can I get for you? And he goes, I'll have, I'll I'll have, I have a Jameson neat and uh, I have a pint. I have a pint too, please. Please. Thanks. Thanks so much. So, So the barman, he gets him the Jameson sits there in the night and he gets him the pint and he he takes he takes Jameson and he takes a big long sip of it and he takes a big long drink of the Guinness and he looks to his left and there's another fella sitting down a couple of bar stools down away from him he says, I, oi, hey ye, I know ye I know ye, I fucking know ye I, where are you from? And the fellow there says, "I'm I'm from Ireland." He goes, "I fucking knew it. I knew you're fucking fucking Ireland. I recognize that face anywhere. I seen that fucking face. I know where you, where are you from in Ireland?" He says, "I'm from Cork." I fuck. I'm from Cork too. I I what? Really? I'm from the city. Are you from the city? He says, oh, yeah. I'm from the city in Cork. I know it." I know it, I've seen you before. I know your face. I know your face. He goes, Where in Cork City where you from? And he said, I I'm from Lower Glenmire." You go, I Jesus Christ on a crutch. I am from Lower Glanmire too. Hey, so where did you go where'd you go to school? He said, I went to Peter and Paul. I I I fucking went to Peter and Paul too. Ah oh, Jesus Christ, imagine that to be two two fellows from Lower Glanmire meeting here in a fucking pub in Chicago. And about that time, another fellow walks in, a new bartender's walking, it's shift-changing time, right? It's like 5 o'clock in the evening. And a new bartender comes up and goes, what's going on? He goes, ah, well, you know, I got these two guys here, this one asshole from Missouri talking about the Cardinals. And then, then I got these, uh, I got, I got uh, Father Doyle over there. He's, uh, he's trying to save that poor fellow's soul. And then, and then, you know, I got uh, Delaney, over there he's trying to get into his secretary's dress that ain't gonna fucking happen and then I got the O'Donovan twins here they're just fucking shit faced that's it everybody I'll talk to you soon